Hello and welcome to CM Conversations. I'm today's host, Lewis Martin, a senior consultant specialising in smart buildings recruitment at CM Industrial. This episode's a bit special. It's our first ever episode recorded via LinkedIn Live. Luckily for it, I'm joined by Dipinder Singh, who, as CEO and founder of 75F, is an absolute expert on smart buildings and all things building automation controls. Together, we discuss the future of the industry. Right, let's get going. Um, okay, well, hello and welcome to a, another episode of CM Conversations. Um, I'm today's host, Lewis Martin, a senior consultant specialising in smart buildings recruitment at CM Industrial. Um, today's not about recruitment, um, and I'm fortunate enough to be with a thought leader and distributor to talk about everything smart buildings related um, and more specifically about a real disruptor, um, which is 75F. And uh, I'm joined by founder and CEO, Dipinder Singh. Dipinder, good afternoon. Hey, Lewis. Uh, great to join you. Thank you so much uh, for having me on. No problem. Um, well, I think to um, to kick things off, and I've asked this on my last couple of podcasts that I've done, um, is as you've seen, and from what I'm seeing in quite a unique position, um, the smart building space is booming um, after what was a, um, a difficult year for us all last year in the industry. Um, from your perspective, Dupinda, why are we seeing such um, a big growth tick in the smart building space? There's a couple of uh, reasons, Lewis. I mean, it's been bubbling in the background. I think there's three things that I can think of is one, overall, I mean, the building space, there's been a lot of talk about IoT, but it hasn't truly percolated on the commercial side. We've had some uh, people that talk about it and adopt it on the consumer side, and now people are expecting the same thing to happen on, on the commercial side as well. Right. So that's one piece. Uh, the second piece is like with COVID, I think there's been a huge impetus. I, I don't know of any other uh, event in history where all of a sudden people are very interested in HVAC systems, as an example. Right. We would have never actually expected people to know what uh, what heating or ventilation systems are. Now everybody's talking about indoor air quality. They're, they're knowing about the ventilation systems. So I think COVID has been uh, a huge uh, catalyst in making this happen. And the third piece is, uh, you know, uh, we had the Paris Accord, which was signed in 2015, and the U.S. withdrew from that. And that was under the Trump administration. We now have a new administration, and it's kind of in some ways heralding a new era around energy efficiency and about uh, doing something about climate change, right? And the kind of interesting thing is that if you can actually, the same technologies that make buildings more healthier, right? The same, uh, which make them more adaptable, the same technologies are the ones which are going to yield energy efficiency and comfort for us as well. So it's a, I think a pretty good trifecta of things coming together. Uh, and uh, we're in a perfect storm for, for intelligent buildings. Yeah, and I'm also looking forward to um, to seeing the, uh, the the Joe Biden um, the the plan come to to, to play um, when it comes to uh, our space. Um, when it comes to COVID, um, like I said at the start, it was quite a difficult year for us all. Um, but it it's it sort of, it, it, from my own perspective, the conversations that I was having, um, there was a, a call to action from clients that when it comes to ESG, sustainability measures, indoor air quality, um, and of course, reducing energy costs, a real call to action. Um, 
I guess, first of all, did you see that as well? And, and also, secondly, if so, why? Yeah, I think uh, we are seeing this. As I said, the call to action is one part is the Biden administration. But I mean, the key thing is what people have woken up to is that they need to do something about their buildings, right? Uh, a lot of people were caught flat-footed in terms of that when, uh, because of COVID, the building shut down, they weren't necessarily able to monetize that in terms of energy savings. Right, so the buildings continue to operate as if they had a very large amount of occupancy. And it took months in cases where people actually had to go in and manually shut down systems and, and turn down systems. Right, so even when now when occupancy is typically about 15 to 25%, you're still seeing that people have started reopening their buildings, but the energy use has not significantly lower than where they were when the buildings were fully operational or, or fully occupied. Right, and the primary reason for that is that uh, they've just not been super adaptive. So, I mean, this is a very good way, and there's been a stark contrast that an empty building continues to use a high amount of energy. Right, so if you and it has really risen in terms of prevalence, in in terms of being noticed from an ESG perspective, as you talked about. Right, so so people are thinking about what can we do about this. So, like, if this is happening when a building is completely empty, what happens? when a building is partially empty? Are we going to continue to end up using a huge amount of energy? And if that's the case, we need to figure out a way to make that, uh, to cut down that footprint. Yeah, and, and another part of this, this COVID element is, as we, speaking in the U, from the UK, but in uh, from a global perspective, as we start to see um, consumers or uh, occupants in general return to the, office space um, or just space in general, indoor air quality is is um, going to be paramount. Um, and I'm extremely, to extremely, extremely keen to touch on 75F's technology um, later on. Uh, but talk me through, I guess, the, the importance of, of that element to uh, making buildings not necessarily more sustainable, but uh, more safe to, to, to go back into. See, uh, it's kind of interesting. We've been doing a bunch of webinars and as the pandemic involved, and it was purely around originally about following what's called the ASHRAE and the CDC, the Center for Disease Control Guidelines. So as our understanding of this pandemic, of this virus has progressed, we have now come to, obviously, everyone now knows that it's an airborne disease, right? And it's an airborne disease that is not only, originally it was thought that it is only in spitting distance that you could infect somebody. But we now know that it could actually be transmitted over a much longer distance just by the sheer concentration of what is called the virus particles, the virions, right? So that viral load itself, there's pretty much only one way of reducing it, and that is like by diluting it. There's people who are using, as an example, bipolar ionization and UV lights to try to kill the virus. But generally speaking, there's not enough energy density over there to kill those things, right? So you actually have to put in a large amount of uh, equipment which would only do one piece, which is really just kill the viral load in a small part of the building. So the CDC has generally said that you want to increase what's called the dilution ventilation to increase the indoor air quality. So what they're recommending is getting a fair amount of outside air and flushing the air continuously to make sure that the virus load inside the building remains at a very low level. Right. So with that, uh, so that's the concept of what we created as we, you touched on the epidemic mode, which basically introduces this concept of purging the air inside the building and making it fresh 
and then during the, when and we do that when the building is not occupied so it's ready for occupancy during the day and during the day you want to get in a slightly higher amount of outside air ventilation and by doing these uh, mechanisms you're not only making sure that the air inside is clean and fresh but you're also ensuring that you're not consuming too much energy so you're not running your systems 24 7. yeah and um Epidemic mode for, for 75F is, is all about innovation. Um, it's a really interesting solution that um, we're, we're seeing great, you're seeing great traction on in the market. Um, let's talk about innovation as a whole, because as we know, the industry lags compared to um, neighboring industries, for example, IT. Um, sure. Why are we now starting to see um, uh, sort of a speed up mode when it comes to bringing, whether it be IT, um, IoT, AI, or um, software as a service, or even sensors, why are we now starting to see a buildup or uh, a, again, a call to action with these technologies? It's been festering for a period of time. It's one part of it is like the early promises that IoT and some of these automation systems uh, that the claims that were made were not necessarily delivered, right? So in, in most, uh, technology adoption curves, the way it happens is you actually have what's called the hype phase, right? There's a certain decline after that, mm -hmm. and then you actually have a slow, steady growth. You see this not just in buildings itself, but even if you look at something like solar, right? We actually had a huge hype back in, in the 2000s, and then you had a clean tech crash uh, right after the housing crash. And then slowly after that, uh, solar has, a, as an example, regained its foothold and is now considered to be is actually now cheaper than setting up a, a conventional uh, power generation plant, right? So the same thing with IoT and some of the clean uh, energy or building automation pieces as well. We've had the hype. We've had a bit of a lull as things have dropped down. And I think we are now on the growth path where the technology itself has matured. The price, what's kind of interesting is what mobile technologies have done in terms of making sensors more ubiquitous, in terms of making... Uh, connectivity more ubiquitous, right? So I think of, there's two confluence of things which is happening. One is sensor technology has dramatically reduced in price and so has connectivity, right? The second thing is cloud computing is another key piece which has really scaled up and has made the massive amount of data which is going to be generated from these devices. It's made it cheap enough to aggregate all of this data in the cloud without necessarily having to worry about compute power or storage resources. Right, so I think there's a huge amount of confluence of these uh, things coming together on the technology enabling side. On the demand side, as I think uh, we talked about, it's, it's basically the climate change, uh, what COVID is doing and what perhaps the new administration might be ushering in as well. Yeah, and um, something that's perhaps holding us back is um, technology or systems not necessarily being open. And we've spoken off air um, about integrated systems and the need for it. Um, I guess very simple, but why? Um, and what benefits would it have? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think if you go back to the history of building automation, like back in the mid 90s, people originally had integrated closed systems, right? So there was a big push to actually democratize everything and make everything open standard based. So back in the 90s, we had this concept of direct digital controls, DDC, and that's where BACnet, as an example, this is an open protocol that was pushed by Ashray, has really taken hold. So in some ways, though, the pendulum has swung too far, 
right? In an effort to make sure that everything is open, what's really happened is building controls over time have become kind of like Lego blocks. There's very little out of the box functionality which is coming in. So what happens is you need a Lego master to piece these pieces together and make a custom solution, right? So, but if you think about it, even in, I'm taking paradigm of, a, of an automobile as an example. If you made a car made out of Lego blocks, conceivably you can make it work. And in fact, I have seen some models which, which are made of Lego blocks. But really speaking, that's a lot of work to make what is a car which could be mass manufactured and deliver a specific outcome. The point of having open protocols is that you can allow things to coexist and essentially leverage other people's capabilities, kind of like a black box, right? But you don't necessarily need an open protocol or an open system to the tiniest little sensor as an example, right? So that to me is in the current day and age where we can, if you truly want to leverage manufacturing capabilities, if you think about your phone system as an example, you don't really care about, can I change the RAM in the phone anymore, right? You don't care, oh, can I change out this CPU and I got, I'm gonna put in a hotter, I'm gonna put in this upgraded screen on my phone and it's gonna be much better than the guy sitting next to me, right? So you don't really do that anymore. We take it for granted that there's an integrated solution that by itself delivers the right amount of value which is required. And that I believe is gonna be the future on building automation as well. That's what we have, the approach that we are taking is rather than having each piece be manually integrated, that it should all work out of the box, right? So it's in the end of the day, you want to make sure all of the integration is done in the software and not in the field by people. Yeah. Right, so that's the approach that we're doing. So machines are much better at doing these things, and that's what we should. We want to leverage the power of Moore's law, and uh, and make sure that we're using computing for that. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and I guess to move on now, um, although seventy five F, if those who don't know, is is a disruptor, it's growing. Um, you've not always had a background in smart buildings or in HVAC. Um, so talk us through in more detail about your background and, and how this concept came to light. Thanks, Luis. Uh, this is an interesting piece. Uh, you know, I, I live in Minnesota. It's pretty damn cold over here. So uh, I'm a computer geek by, uh, by profession. I'm a network engineer. So my claim to fame is that I had uh, one of the world's first terabit routers sitting in my garage for five years, <laughs> right? So if you uh, come to the US and you use Ryzen, there's some chance that it's actually going over a network that I would, I would have created. But uh, it so happened, my daughter was one, we moved her into her own bedroom. And she would wake up in the middle of the night crying. And I found it's because the temperature in her room was dropping about 10 degrees at night. So what was happening is the thermostat was in the master bedroom, we were west facing. So the sun would come in, it would be nice and warm in the master bedroom, but the rest of the house, the heat wouldn't kick on, so it would be freezing. So the story goes that I quit my job to fix the damn problem, which is why we're talking today, right? So the thing though is that when I came in from this networking world, I had this concept of what's called a software defined network is, is the paradigm that was going hot at that point. So we brought the same paradigm over to what we are doing. We call it a software defined hardware, right? So it's the same piece of hardware. It just takes on different personalities. The software is what makes it smart and work with different sets of equipment, different pieces, topologies as we call them of equipment uh, and HVAC controls within the buildings. Yeah, and when it comes to your backgrounds, 
although maybe 10 years ago, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily have seen it, but um, from my perspective, it's almost uh, a mandatory need having that OTIT understanding um, to really um, understand where the industry is going and how to get there. Um, have, I presume, um, easy question, that's benefited you as, as well? Yeah, it is absolutely. I think, Luisa, uh, you guys recognize this quite well as well, I think, in terms of the marrying of, as you said, OT and IT, and it's getting more, more and more integrated. And I believe that is going to be the case for all technology adoption curves, right? And uh, so the key thing is like just having that background really helps. And, and there have been some very fundamental reasons why our HVAC or building controls have not caught on at the same level that the IT industry has. And the primary reason for that is, in, uh, is that if you think about the life cycle of the equipment, right, the life cycle equipment that is typically there for HVAC or a building is actually much longer. You expect 15 years lifetime, right? So if you are always designing something which is more reliable, which is more stoic, which is more wetted out, but if you think of what's really happening on the IT side, I mean, it's now pretty much granted that you want to replace a computer every three years. If you had talked about this paradigm, I don't know, maybe uh, 25, uh, 30 years ago, it would have been pretty heretical to say that you're going to be taking up and you're going to be spending $1,000 on a new phone every two years, bang, bang, bang. But I think one part is that we've come used to, to this piece, and that's why IT technology has really always been leading consumer electronics is another example, right? So even if you think about uh, cameras as an example, it used to be that you'd buy a camera or you'd buy a watch and you'd treasure it for a lifetime. And now, I mean, we are end up ending up replacing all of these things uh, far more far more quicker, right? So, so the, this primary reason, I think, I believe that the HVAC industry had not necessarily, has not had a chance to have as many technologies refresh cycles as it's called. And with, with that, how, how are you overcoming that with your, your strategy of 75F? Right. I think one of the key things that we did is we created this concept, I think, uh, of the software-defined hardware. But the biggest advantage that we say is that the hardware itself can remain, but the, oh, the software keeps getting updated. Right, so if I come in from an IoT perspective, the big advantage to having IoT is that all your soft, all your edge devices, every sensor, every controller has the capability of keeping on getting better. Right, so even as an example, if they're pushing over the air upgrades to your Tesla, why aren't we not pushing over the air upgrades to your buildings? Right, and as I said, overall the cloud infrastructure has become so cheap, there should be no limitation in terms of the amount of data that you're storing. You should no longer be billed specifically by the number of like how many temperature points are you going to be sensing. So all of those are pseudo barriers at this point. With the right set of technology, the amount of what's called data points, the points in a building, right, it should be unlimited. And that's what we're really providing. So you're not capped by the capacity of a machine, of a server sitting in your basement. You're uncapped. It's unconstrained, so there's huge amount of data which can be unlocked, and more importantly, you can actually keep on sending software updates which harness that data, the rich data, and keep getting better all the time. And that's primarily what we really set out to do as well. Okay, interesting. And um, I've got a few questions that are coming in on LinkedIn, and I'll just 
This is quite a, an interesting one. Sure. Um, it's from uh, an individual called Jonathan Spooner. Um, how does edge computing align with this vision of um, leveraging software over hardware? Yeah. That's an excellent question. So I think the, the two are synonymous. Edge computing cannot actually work without actually having software-defined hardware, right? The whole point of edge computing is that you're pushing algorithms on the edge, but they need to keep on getting better, right? So you push out a fair amount of a hardware uh, which is capable of processing and keep on evolving. And that to me is, is the key thing. The software part gives the flexibility because it's very hard to do a hardware refresh itself in the edge. So if you really want edge computing to work, then really speaking, edge computing needs to keep on getting better, right? So, so I think of them, uh, the two are absolutely are talking principally of the same thing. Yeah, and talking in, um, in more detail about 75F, um, it's been a, a great journey thus far and you're, you're nowhere near finished yet. Um, you've been um, very fortunate and, and rightly so to be backed by some of the, the biggest um, capital, capital houses, um, including Bill Gates' um, Breakthrough Ventures and, and also building um, ventures in general. Um, talk me through that and I guess that the transition of this concept of uh, how it started in um, what, six, seven years ago, I think, or maybe longer to, to where you are now? Yeah, it started about eight years ago and uh, it started in my basement. And, and you know, the joke is that all startups start in a garage, but that's because in the Silicon Valley, they don't actually have basements, <laughs> right? Yeah. When you're in the Midwest, we actually have the ground freezes. So you need a basement to make sure that your foundation doesn't shift. So all houses in the Midwest actually have a basement. And if you have a basement, so the startups in the Midwest actually start in a, in a basement, not in a garage. So that's where it started. In, it started in my basement. And in terms of the business now, operations in India, Singapore, and, and also naturally um, the US, um, where are you as a business currently? Because I appreciate um, well, most businesses anyway, it was a very difficult year last year, but um, it seems like um, 75F is continuing in growth mode um, from a global perspective. Absolutely. So, so we're continuing to very aggressively expand. You're right. Those are the three countries we're in right now uh, where we have a, our own offices. We're deployed in seven countries at this point, and we're expanding more in APAC and uh, Europe as well. And there's a big partnership that we have uh, for South America where we're expanding as well. So, so lots of opportunities. Uh, so for people who are anyway, uh, who are watching this and looking to join 75F, please go check out. We have a bunch of op options available uh, in terms of job postings. And of I know you're absolutely fantastic at, at that as well. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, and going into the, the products and solutions, just in a bit more detail, um, naturally the epidemic mode is, is so timely given where we are as a as a as a well as a industry, but more globally speaking, um, talk me through some of the other solutions that you you bring to bring to market because naturally it's not just pigeonholing indoor air quality or reducing energy costs. There's so many more different um, avenues customers or um, clients could look to to utilize your technology. Right. 
Louis, I mean, we do pretty much all building topologies going from starting from somewhere around 10,000 square feet over to buildings over a million square feet, right? So we deploy them, we do large multi-site operations for restaurants, as an example, or retail stores. We also do very large buildings, which are one-offs for our clients. Uh, so people like WeWork in India are using 75F as the default building management solution now, right? So we are taking everything from the HVAC side, we've done lighting controls and we have integrated third-party equipment, whether that be uh, chillers, whether that uh, be uh, UPSs, fire alarm systems, and even water repellent, uh, sorry, uh, rodent repellent systems. So I didn't know that you could actually have automated rodent repellent systems, but uh, you can actually change the frequency depending on the types of rats that you have in your, in your building. Interesting. Um, and just uh, just a couple more questions from um, individuals from LinkedIn, uh, this time from um, Mark Snell. Um, for complex buildings with BMS, smart systems and sensors, how do you guys analyze the data and make predictions for buildings usage? Do you use integrations using, using a SPOG? Yeah, so that's very interesting. In terms of the building usage itself, uh, the approach that we have taken is we have our sensors themselves measure a lot of parameters. So they measure temperature, humidity, light, occupancy, sound levels, uh, volatile organic compounds, pretty much everything that you need for the well building standard. So we measure them all out of the box, right? So the data is always there. So we've tried to make it non-optional that you have a high level of integrated data suite available in each and every zoom. So the big thing with 75F is that I mean, not only are we controlling to individual comfort levels, we are controlling to very, very granular indoor air quality. So we can actually do demand control ventilation, including ASHRAE 62.1, the new standards, which look at occupancy and also CO2 at a very granular level. And that's what we're really working on. Okay. And this time from Brian Lackey, which um, is, uh, is very interesting. Um, how would you or how are you addressing the network security concerns that IT always complains about? Sure. Um, this has been a problem which we know about with integrating building HVAC systems with their, with its own building network systems too. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think it's kind of interesting because the world that I come from, network security is so intrinsically based, right? I come from network design originally. So security is very granular to what we start. In fact, the technologies we use, security is non-optional, right? So we use the same technology as an example that your bank uses, the same kind of the web browser SSL encryption that you would use to access your online banking account, right? The primary reason the security issue exists in HVAC systems is because the standards that I was talking about, BACnet as an example, right? Doesn't have an inbuilt intrinsic sense of security. So BACnet itself is not encrypted. There is no security in the, in the protocol itself. So it has to be overlaid purely in terms of logins and stuff. So if you actually have physical access to the network, it is unsecured. That is not the case with the technologies that we use, right? So we, uh, as an example, our gateway is based on an Android subsystem. So if you trust your phone to make, uh, do banking or store your credit card, I mean, it's the same subsystem that we are using to actually control your building, right? So, uh, and it's, so it's well tried, it's very, because it's open source, it's very well protected. The other interesting thing is because it's actually 
outbound from the building. You cannot actually, you don't need any configuration of the firewalls. You're using more modern technologies. So you don't actually have to have port mapping or pins or anything which is required normally to make a BMS system work, right? You don't even actually have to have a VPN. All you got to do is put in the system in the building and then access it over the cloud. So it fundamentally simplifies things just because of the paradigm that you've chosen, which is based on, on mobile technology and technology. Okay, um, and, and final question before we look to wrap things up. Um, this one's from Lu Chen. Um, what do you see as the biggest challenge when trying to fill in the gap between physical world and the digital world when it comes to realizing smart buildings? Yeah, so that's a phenomenal question. And it goes down to something very intrinsic, which is this concept of what is called a digital twin. Yeah. Right? So if you think of where a digital twin is right now, you actually have the physical infrastructure and then people then manually go in and create these relationships to create what is called a digital twin. For building solutions to scale, especially smart buildings to scale, smart cities to scale, and go in the future where we have this concept of what's called distributed energy resources. So where solar and wind are the primary mode of generation of electricity. The big difference is gonna be the grid cannot scale up and down based on the load. So if you look at a current gas turbine, you can actually scale it up and down in terms of the power output based on how much the buildings need in terms of capacity. With the new renewable sources, what's going to happen is based on the natural weather phenomena, that capacity is going to keep on varying, and so the load itself will have to fluctuate. So there's two ways around it. You either use storage technology or the load itself ramps up and up and down. The only way that can really occur is if you have a true bi-directional communication with the grid, and that occurs if you have a true digital model of the HVAC equipment. So it's a long-winded way of saying that digital twins are, are absolute mandatory for the buildings of the future. The key thing that we did is that when you go in, and we made it super simple to go put in our systems, it used to be like a couple of years ago, we did a project in the elementary school. We actually asked the kids who were eight and nine years old to go put in the system themselves. Right, so no training at all. These kids are going blasting holes in the walls like, hi, Mrs. Karen. Right, so they're, they're having a blast. They put in the system and they didn't really need, so they didn't need to be certified. They didn't need to be trained. The beauty of it is that when we, they put in the system, not only is the machine learning working to optimize their building, this, when they did it, the digital twin was created out of the box as well. Right, so we make it non-optional. So our, all our algorithms, Everything that we have done intrinsically is working on a digital twin or model of the entire building of the HVC system. And that's why we can get the efficiencies we have. So I don't think that these need to be optional. And, and that's the primary benefit of having this completely vertically integrated stack the way we've done it. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of looking to wrap this up, digital twin to one side, which naturally is is one of the elements of our um, industry's future. Um, what trends do you anticipate our industry seeing this year? I think uh, back, one of the key things that we're seeing is that in real estate, we've seen this happen. People are not just talking about a green asset. They're talking about what's called a clean asset, right? So it's kind of interesting. So we talked about a little bit about uh, buildings being healthier in IAQ. Right, so there's going to be a massive shift, I believe, to this clean asset. And overall, we know that the way we use office space 
is going to be irrevocably changed, right? There is going to be, it's not going to be as well utilized as it was before. What that means is there's going to be a surplus of office, office real estate. The real estate proprietors who are differentiating their building stock are going to come up as winners. Those who don't heed this trend are going to be left way behind because really speaking in the fight for tenancy, that IAQ, that making sure that your customers and employees are safe, I think is going to be a predominant theme. In addition to making sure that your footprint, carbon footprint itself is lower. So the two would have to marry together. Okay, very interesting. Um, well, that's it for today. Um, I'd like to thank this this time my host or my guest, shall I say, Dependa. Dependa, thanks for your time. Louis, thank you so much. Great to have you. Yeah, and um, if if you'd like to learn more about 75F, please check out our website. It's 75F.io. Um, and yeah, that's it for me today. Thanks for your time um, and thanks for listening. Cool. Thank you, everyone. Cheers. So that was our latest sim conversations about the future of smart buildings. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you'd like to get involved with any more of my smart buildings content or are interested in my services as a global recruiter, get in touch via our website at www.searchingindustrial.com. Thanks for listening. And for more podcasts like this, please subscribe to CM Conversations.